0: I grew up listening to the Lux Radio yeah, Theater. Yeah. And uh, was it a really uh, star studded show, wasn't it? I it mean, was.
1: As yes. you are... see, the um, agency, the J. Walter Thompson Company, that produced the show for Chase and Sanborn, had a good in with the motion picture studios, particularly MGM. And at that time, the motion picture studios, Metro Gold Mary, 20th Century, and Universal, all of them, had contract players. They had uh, stars, or young stars, particularly under contract. Mm -hmm. And they would get them to come on the radio show, you see, for not a great deal of money, because it was really part of their contract to do that. Mm -hmm. Of course, the other big stars, they just paid, and it was quite a thing to be on the show. But they got many of their players from the studios because the studios said, do it. Then, when the contract system ended, which it practically was gone now, there's no studio, has a lot of people under contract, performers. That ended, and there was just no more available talent. Then you'd say, okay, maybe my full price, you yeah. see.
2: At network radio's height, no dramatic show was more popular than CBS's Lux Radio Theater. Between 1936 and '54, it never finished lower than eighth in the ratings, and it was radio's top show between 1947 and 52. Ken Carpenter announced radio's best supporting talent, like Paula Winslow, worked opposite Hollywood's biggest stars. Yeah, well, I know, you must Very have done
0: nice. uh, a number of Lux Radio Theater broadcasts uh, oh, yes. over the years. Oh, yes, a lot of them. And I understand that many times the big movie stars who would come in to perform on the show along with the whole cast of radio people.
3: The movie stars were very uncomfortable and really nervous about doing Oh, that, they
4: were sense. they were terribly nervous, mm-hmm. some of them, terribly. I did a show one time with Rex Harrison, you know, this mm-hmm. marvelous, elegant man who was so experienced, I was just, literally the paper just shaking, just, <laughs> just shaking in his head. Yes, many of them were very good. Well, some of the people were absolutely marvelous. Visually, Mm -hmm. but some of them were not stage trained Mm -hmm. and were uncomfortable when they had only the voice to work with. Now, that's understandable.
0: And they were probably uh, unaccustomed to facing a studio audience of two or three hundred people.
4: Well, looking at that and reading lines Mm -hmm. into a metal thing hanging down. (laughs) And on the screen, they were marvelous and so effective. And uh, I can understand that. It was a very mechanical kind of thing. You mm-hmm. had to learn how to use that mic, and we all got used to that. The mm-hmm. ones who started, as you can understand, is like a child learning from scratch, mm-hmm. and so it never bothered us.
2: Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern was Appointment Radio, and CBS built the rest of its powerhouse Monday schedule around Lux. It helped shows like My Friend Irma, in her Sanctum, Screen Guild, and Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts reached new heights. It was also radio's most-rehearsed show. All the players were expected to be available for an entire week leading up to the live Monday broadcast. John Gibson, better known as Ethelbert on Crime Photographer, remembered the schedule. Some of those uh, were such
5: wonderful plays, and we had wonderful casts. We worked with wonderful people. And uh, we had such a thrill playing these in a big theater with an audience.
0: Yeah, it was really a lavish production. you have a full orchestra, you have yes. a live audience, and you'd have all top names playing. Yes. It was always three or four leading roles, uh, either Broadway or Hollywood actors.
5: That's How long right. would you rehearse for a show like that? Well, as I recall, we would take several days i remember the original Lux radio theater before acting became unionized it took a whole week to prepare an hour broadcast
2: vincent price one of hollywood's only stars contractually allowed to do as much radio as he wanted remembered working the show
3: it was really extraordinary cecil b demille was the host and uh, William Keeley and the different people, you know, I mean, very distinguished directors. The fact that all of the money went to the Actors Fund was very impressive. Besides, I suppose it had one of the biggest listening audiences of all time. And these dramas were rehearsed like plays. You know, you rehearsed a full week.
2: A TV version of Lux premiered in 1950.
0: How long were you associated with the Lux Radio Theater? Well, I'm
1: trying to think. Probably, uh, well, I started in, in about 1943, I think, mm-hmm. and was with it until its demise when they went to the Lux Video Theater, yeah. then moved over to the television end of it and did the Lux Video mm-hmm. Theater. That was quite an experience. The early days of television were like the early days of radio to a certain extent. In other words, you tried uh-huh. things. You know, everybody was learning. The great thing, the thing that I enjoyed, and it was tough, but it was all live. Television was done completely live in those days. We did a kinescope for the uh, repeat out here, but the, uh, the show itself, the hour of video theater, was done completely live, dramatic show. Tough on actors, I don't know how they did it, because learning their moves, not only their lines and their acting, but their moves, where they had to be, and changing clothes behind sets, you know, dressers dressing them. It was a very uh, difficult thing to do, but well, once you did it, you had a great sense of accomplishment, that you could do it.
0: They must have been out of breath running from one set to they the next. They were at times. No oh, no yes, cuts. yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, you bunch of the stage manager
2: just grabbing and hauling <laughs> over the next set.
1: That's quite a sight.
2: Near the end of the radio run, it was estimated Lux had gone through more than 50,000 pages of script, 500 stars, 1,500 supporting players, 20,000 music cues, and 20,000 sound effects. In 1954, Lux was still rated fifth overall with a 6.2, but even radio's most famous dramatic show wasn't immune to the times. Towards the end of the season, it was announced that CBS and Lux would be cutting ties in June. All that was left was to put a bow on one of the most successful shows in radio history.
6: Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, brings you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Dan Daly and Dorothy McGuire in A Blueprint for Murder. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Irving Cummings.
5: Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight's play, A Blueprint for Murder, is a spine-tingling mystery. The thrilling drama of a romance which was overshadowed by the suspicion of murder. It's the quandary of a young man who suspects that the lovely young widow of his brother may be a diabolical poisoner. And as our stars, we have popular Dan Daly and Dorothy McGuire, creating two unusual roles in this suspenseful motion picture ...from 20th Century Fox. But for a moment, let's listen to Ken Carpenter.
6: They say it's springtime that'll turn a young man's fancy to uh, thoughts of you-know-what. But I know that a really feminine-looking gal can turn a man's fancy and his head any time of the year. And there's nothing more feminine than sheer, lovely nylon stockings. And, of course, no care but Lux Flakes care for them. 96% of stocking manufacturers recommend Lux Flakes... It pays you to follow their advice. Because Lux Flakes Care can actually double the wear you get from every pair. So always give your nylons gentle Lux Flakes Care. And uh, when you're picking up Lux Flakes at the market, be sure to get the new Lux too, Lux Liquid Detergent. It's made just for the dish's job. Even though the carpenters have been using Lux Liquid for months now, I still can't get over how quickly it floats grease off plates and glasses. And so little will do so much. Just a teaspoonful does a dishpan full. While it's rough on grease, Lux Liquid is gentle on your hands. Every bit as mild as you'd expect a Lux product to be. The can it comes in is special, too. It has a wonderful new dripless spout that makes it almost impossible for anyone, including me, to mess up the sides of the can. Yes, Lux Liquid is the next best thing to a dishwashing machine. As good for dishes as Lux Flakes are for nylons. If you don't agree, both are all we say. Lever Brothers will give you back whatever you paid for them.
5: Now, Act One of A Blueprint for Murder, starring Dan Daly as Cam and Dorothy McGuire as Lynn Cameron.
7: The telegram was waiting for me in New Orleans telegram from Lynn. I took the next plane back and rushed to the hospital. Late that afternoon, the doctor was able to give us some real encouragement.
5: And so I think our worries are over, Mr. Cameron. But she was a mighty sick little girl. You still don't know what was wrong? Not for sure. The tetany test was negative. Tetany? Those muscular spasms she was having, are quite characteristic. Well, I'm sure she'll have quite a comfortable night. I understand you're the child's uncle, is that right?
7: Yes, her father's dead, and my brother. I'm very attached to both children and their stepmother.
5: Well, Mrs. Cameron's had quite an ordeal. Why not uh, take her home? We, uh, will have a special nurse on duty, and if anything at all yes, comes uh, up... Yes, we'll... I'll try and get her to leave now.
2: Oh,
8: I wouldn't think of leaving here if it weren't for Doug. Oh, poor little boy. He doesn't know what to make of all this. I'll phone him and tell him I'm coming. There's a booth down the corridor. Cam, now that you're here, how about spending a few days with us?
7: I'd really like to, Lynn, but I should get back tomorrow. We're opening the new field in Venezuela.
8: (laughs) You're always roaming all over the world. Did it ever occur to you that we might like to see you once in a while? It's so important to the children, especially Doug. He's never quite got over Bill's death. And he's so fond of you.
7: Let me see what I can do. Maybe I can stay over a few days.
8: Oh, I wish you would. Well,
7: Here's your phone booth. I'll look up a public stenographer. I got some letters and a couple of telegrams. I'll, get off. I'll meet you at the house.
8: Wonderful. We'll expect you for dinner. And can. Thanks for everything.
9: Gosh, Lynn, do I have to go to bed? Can't we play just one more game? It's
8: way past your bedtime, Doug, and tomorrow's
9: school. But Uncle Kim's only going to be here for a few days.
7: And we're going to have fun for those few days, too. How about the ice show tomorrow?
9: Oh, boy. Gee, I wish Polly could go, too. It was awful last night, Uncle Kim. The way she kept yelling, don't touch my feet.
7: Yes, uh, I know, but I think we should try and get that out of our minds, Doug.
9: Dad was just like that when he died. Just like that? Well, I'm afraid
8: Doug's letting his imagination run away with him.
9: But he was. All stiff and funny, too. Just, just the same as Polly.
8: Is that right? Well, there was some similarity, I suppose. But the doctors all agreed that Bill had virus encephalitis. Anyway, there must be a lot of things with the same symptoms.
7: Yes, I suppose so.
9: Have you told Uncle Canem about your baseball team, Doug? Boy, have we got a team. I knocked two home runs last week.
7: Uh, if we were up in Boston, Slugger, we could see the Red Sox play. Say, how about letting Doug spend the summer with me?
9: Oh, please,
8: Lynn, please. Well, why not? Sounds wonderful. Oh,
9: boy.
7: Now, uh, <laughs> let's see. I've still got the sailboat out in the Cape. I don't want to take care of the weekends, and during the week, we...
9: Lynn took us up to Lake George last summer, and I learned a lot about boats, Uncle Cam.
7: Seems to me Lynn's been mighty good to you.
9: She sure has. Well, good night, Uncle Cam. Good night, Doug. Good night, Lynn. Sleep well, dear. And just call if there's anything you want. I will. See you in the morning, Uncle Kim.
7: You've been wonderful. The way you're bringing up those kids.
8: They're nice kids. It hasn't been hard.
7: When their mother died, I thought no one would ever be able to take her place. They really love you, Lynn. I don't see how they can help it. I always thought Bill was a lucky man. And now I'm beginning to realize just how...
8: Oh, excuse me. Hello? Yes. Yes, we'll be right there. Cam, that was Dr. Stevenson at the hospital. Holly? He told us to come right over. She's had a relapse.
0: Cam, well, well, when did you hit town? Hello, Fred. Well, come in. Hey, Maggie, look who's Here. Oh, this is wonderful. We haven't seen you in ages. Had you breakfast? Fred, uh, I've got bad news.
7: I wouldn't be here at this hour except... It's Polly, Fred. Polly's
0: dead. Dead?
10: Cam, well, of all the wonderful surprises.
0: Take it easy, honey. Some terrible news, little Polly Cameron. She's dead. She's what? I just can't believe it. Accident?
10: No, no, she took sick. When, Cam, when?
7: Early this morning at the hospital.
10: Oh, what a tragedy. And Lynn and poor little Doug, how's he taking
7: it? Well, they're both under sedatives. Your breakfast, please go ahead.
10: You'll have some coffee anyway. I'll get another cup.
7: I have no right to barge in like this, and I should have phoned
0: you first. That's a fine way to talk to an old friend. Fred, you're still handling the estate, aren't you? Yes, yes, of course. Cam, what was wrong with Polly?
7: Well, the doctor seemed rather uncertain. He doesn't know? Sometimes it's hard to tell, I suppose, but there's one thing about it that bothers me. Well? Apparently, Polly had the same sort of convulsions that Bill had before he died.
10: Cam, are you sure of that?
7: I'm not sure of anything. I, I only know that Polly kept screaming, don't touch my feet.
10: That's, that's very curious.
7: I don't see anything curious about it at all. It's, it's just that I'm afraid there might be something hereditary in all this and that it could hit Doug, too.
10: Cam, you weren't here when Bill died, were you? No. Well, what did the doctors tell you he died from?
7: Virus encephalitis. A sort of a sleeping sickness.
10: Yet in Polly's case, they don't know? Somehow back in my mind, that don't touch my feet rings a bell.
0: Maggie, please. She still writes for those pulp magazines. You know what an imagination she is.
10: This has nothing to do with imagination. This was research I did at a medical library a couple of years ago. I had an idea for a story, and
0: That's I... what I thought, a story.
8: Well,
10: maybe you're right. Forget it.
7: Well, if there's something on your mind, say it.
10: Well, I was looking up a murder case The victim also had convulsions and kept screaming, don't touch my hands!" So? He died of
0: strychnine poisoning Oh, Maggie, for heaven's sake, how can you even suggest such a thing?
10: I only mean there's a, well, a similarity
0: You know nothing about what's happened, nothing Maggie,
7: don't you think the doctors would have recognized strychnine?
10: Well, I don't know They didn't in the case I looked up, and they apparently don't know what killed Polly Let's see what the encyclopedia says about convulsions.
0: Why do you always have to dramatize everything? You're really going off the deep end, Maggie. Well, look it up if you want to. She sees a man take a pocket knife to sharpen a pencil, and right away she starts building up a murder case. Well,
10: don't both of you jump on me. I only mentioned it as something that should be looked into. Anyway, here it is in the encyclopedia.
0: Let me see it. Well, I... I list eight causes. Tetanus. Only tetanus would have required a cut.
10: Obviously, it wasn't rabies. Epilepsy.
0: There's no history of it in the family.
10: With all these others, like a brain tumor, there would have been earlier indications. All except one. Well. Read it.
7: Poisons, especially the alkaloids, such as strychnine. That doesn't prove anything. No, of course not. Uh, I'd like to use your phone. I'd like to call Doctor Stevenson.
10: We Well,
5: we thought of the possibility of strychnine, Doctor. You're serious about this, Mrs. Sargent?
10: I don't mean to be rude, Doctor, but you do admit you don't know what that child
5: died from. Is this your idea, too, Mr. Cameron? I haven't any ideas, Doctor, but you
7: told me it wasn't tetany, and yet that's what you put on the death certificate.
5: Because that's what we were treating the patient for. She responded to the calcium, so we continued it. As a matter of fact, I suggested an autopsy. Oh?
7: Lynn couldn't stand the idea. I agreed. Nothing
5: could be gained by it. Mrs. Sargent, just how do you think the child got the poison? I don't know, of course, but
10: I don't see how it could have been accidental.
5: I hope you realize what you're saying. Meanwhile, Mr. Cameron, I'm afraid I don't want any part of all this.
10: I'm sorry I ever mentioned it. Come on, Cam, let's go.
5: Thank you for seeing us. You're quite welcome, Mr. Cameron. Who could
10: have done it, Maggie? Who? Oh, several people. For instance. For instance, Lynn. Good day, Dr. Stevenson.
7: Maggie, what's got into you making a crazy crack like that about Lynn?
10: Now, doggone it, I'm getting mad. I only said it was possible she could have done it. And it is.
7: Well, you've got her all wrong. She certainly made Bill a good wife. He was very happy with her.
10: Do you plan to stay on?
7: Till the end of the week.
10: Just three or four days, huh? Can I drive you anywhere? No, no thanks. Think it over, Cam. It sounds ridiculous, I know. What is
7: it? Say hello to Fred. I'll, I'll see you both in a day or two. I was with Lynn most of the next few days. More and more, I realized what a wonderful person she was. Her warmth and affection for Doug helped so much to soften the blow of his sister's death. Never did Maggie's suspicions seem more fantastic than now.
8: Must you really leave tomorrow, Cam?
7: I've stretched it as long as I could, Lynn. But I'll be back as soon as I can. You can rely on that.
8: I don't know what I would have done without... Yes, Anna? It's the phone, ma'am, for Mr. Cameron. It's Mr. Sergeant.
7: I tell him I'll call him back later, Anna.
8: No, no, no. Go on. I'll run upstairs and see if Doug's asleep. I'll take
7: it in the study, Anna.
9: Yes,
0: and I just wanted to know if you're still leaving in the morning.
7: Yes, of course. Why?
0: Well, I hesitate to talk about it on the phone. It's about your brother Bill's estate. Well? Under the terms of his will, Lynn shares in trust. She receives only the interest unless... Well, unless what? Now, I don't want you to think we're jumping at conclusions, Cam. We're not. It's just that I... Unless what? Unless both children were to die. Both Polly and Doug.
7: Fred, what the devil are you trying to say?
0: Well, it could provide a motive.
7: I'm not amazed at you.
0: I know how all this must sound, Cam, but I think you ought to stay over another day so we can talk it over.
7: All right. All right, I'll see you in the morning.
8: Cam, anything wrong?
7: Wrong? Oh, no, no. Fred just called to say goodbye.
8: Oh, I hate that word.
7: I told him he was being premature, and I've decided to stay a day or two longer. That is, if it's all right with you.
8: You know it is.
7: Was Doug all right?
8: Oh, yes, thank goodness. I'm worried about him. He doesn't look at all well.
7: It's been the same for him as for the rest of us. Mm. Such a terrible shock.
8: No, but Doug hasn't been looking well for weeks. I'm thinking of taking him out of school, Cam, maybe a trip to Europe. Why? Well, he needs a change. Everything here only reminds him of his father and Polly... And it would be good for me, too.
7: How long would you be away?
8: Oh, I don't know. Maybe a year or so. That long? Hmm. Might be very good for him. Visiting all the little out-of-the-way places and just taking it easy. I'm not worried about his schoolwork. He's such a bright boy. We could take some sort of study schedule with us, and that way he be... Good.
0: No point in getting excited about it, Cam. We're just talking about it among ourselves. But I can't close my eyes to the fact that Lynn did have a motive. I don't
7: care how it adds up. You'll never convince me that Lynn is capable of murder.
10: Bill left a lot of money, Cam. Almost a million dollars.
0: And now you tell us she's thinking of taking Doug abroad.
10: Yes, to those out-of-the-way places in Europe.
0: What do you want me to do? Be objective, that's all.
10: Cam, I've gone through every book on poison cases I can find. There have been plenty of women who were poison murderers. Stop it, Maggie. Please. Madeline Smith, Florence Maybrick, Lydia Trueblood, dozens of others. Many of them were young, beautiful, intelligent, and cultured.
7: You still refuse to answer a very simple question. If it was Strychnine that killed Polly, why didn't the doctors recognize it?
10: Because they weren't looking for it. Here's the dope on lots of famous poison cases. Not in one instance did a doctor call the turn based on medical diagnosis.
0: You just can't dismiss it as impossible, that's all. At least I can't.
10: Here's something else you might look over. This happened in Philadelphia. More than a hundred people killed by arsenic before even one of the cases was suspected. Yet that's the only case reported in Philadelphia in the last 20 years.
7: All right. How do they account for it?
10: Because there are so many diseases, apparently, that simulate poison symptoms. And the idea of murder seems so utterly incredible to the doctors that it doesn't even enter their minds.
0: Don't think I'm sold on this theory, Cam, because I am not. Too many things don't make sense. If Lynn were guilty, for example, she'd have had Polly's body cremated.
7: Lynn did want Polly cremated. I talked her out of it. Bill wouldn't have wanted it.
0: I see. I, I I didn't know.
10: Then Polly could have been poisoned.
0: Cam, we we just can't dismiss this lightly. Well, I can and I will. And if Doug should also die, Cam, then what? Doug? Would you ever be able to forgive yourself? You're a lawyer. What do you suggest? I'm afraid there's only one thing to do. Talk to the police. Get a court order for an autopsy. All right. Let's get it over with.
8: Cam? Are you coming in? Dinner's ready.
7: Hmm? Oh.
8: oh. What's the matter with you? You've been staring out of that window for half an hour. Ever since you got that phone call. Where's Doug? I told you. He's having dinner at his friends down the street.
7: Lynn, I've got to talk to you.
8: Well, can't it wait until after dinner?
7: No, it can't wait any longer. Lynn, I don't know how to begin. that phone call before, it was about Polly... Polly was
8: poisoned. Poisoned? Yes. Oh. Why, it just couldn't be. Cam, there must be some mistake.
7: I'm afraid not.
8: But how? How could it have happened?
7: The police think it was intentional. Police? Yes, it was their medical examiner who performed the autopsy. They want you and the servants down for questioning tomorrow morning.
8: Oh, but this is impossible. It doesn't make any sense. The police, well. What gave them the idea of performing an autopsy?
7: Lynn, you know Dr. Stevenson wasn't certain what caused Polly's death. No. Well, uh, there was a reason for thinking. It, it could have been strychnine. The symptoms are almost identical. And
8: you knew about this, and you didn't even mention it to me.
7: I didn't think they'd find anything wrong. There was no purpose in upsetting you. I, I know it's miserable being dragged down to the police for a lot of oh, stupid well, questions. Oh, well, that
8: can't be helped, but there's one fact we can't get away from. If Polly was poisoned, then somebody did it. It's up to us to find that somebody.
7: Yes, ma'am.
8: I'll need your help more than ever now. I'll be here. Thank you.
6: Before we continue with Act Two of A Blueprint for Murder, let's hear from Francis Scully.
2: Lux would run one more season moving to NBC where it was still a top-four show. The Lux Video Theater also shifted to NBC. It ran until 1957 before changing formats and bringing in Rosemary Clooney to star. In its final season in 1959, the show became the Lux Playhouse before being canceled. So
6: I'm told. Doesn't Elizabeth Taylor play the role of the spoiled, willful girl they both
4: love? That's right, Ken. In the most romantic performance of her career, The picture
8: is in a delightfully carefree mood, and the background swiftly changes from Switzerland to Paris
3: and the Riviera. Every Christmas, Lux would put on uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Generally, the same people would get called back each year to play the same parts that they'd played. And I don't know if you remember the picture or the story, which was, you know, it's on all the time. In order to prove that he was actually Santa Claus, there was a trial. The plaintiff's attorney said, we can prove that he's really Santa Claus by all the mail he gets that's directed to Santa Claus. So they called the guy from the post office to bring in the mail, and I played the guy with the truck with all the mail, and the judge says, put it up here on my desk. And I say, yeah, but your honor, there's bags and bags and bags of it out there. He says, bring it in. I said, okay, Your Honor, through hail, through snow, through sleet, through we deliver. So this particular male guy that I played had like in one small, like in about 15 minutes, he had three different entrances. Came in, did a few lines, went out, came in, did a few lines again, and came back and did a few lines again. Now on Lux, I don't remember exactly, but they did an they rehearsed more with Lux than any other show. Lux was on Monday night, and they would have a show, like, a rehearsal, like maybe on a Tuesday, and they would rehearse again Thursday, and then they would rehearse, I believe, Friday, and then Sunday, Sunday, you'd go in there Sunday and rehearse most of the day, and then do a dress rehearsal with the audience. Then Monday you come in, you do another dress rehearsal with an audience, and now you do the show. Now, that's four times now that you've, in the last two days, you've done it, right? Well... I was doing this guy for the third or fourth or fifth year, I don't know, and I got a call to do what they used to call in those days an audition, which was a pilot for a new show called Father Knows Best with a guy by the name of Bob Young, and I played his sidekick Hector Smith. This was the audition platter that they were making, and they were doing it at 8 o'clock at night, and Lux went off the air at 8. I think Lux was on from 7 to 8. Now, Fred McKay was the director of Lux of this particular show. On Lux, they had so many ad libs that they would have everybody that wasn't on the mic stand over on the side by another mic, and they would cue the ad libs, you know, when yeah, it was a drawing was room a comedy, and the people on, would... Yeah, well, well, that well, there, I never it, heard that. But that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you weren't on mic... You had to get over there, and they had Lou Merrill or Eddie Marr or somebody running the ad libs. Eddie Marr. For which he got an extra? Five dollars. Five dollars. <laughs> okay. So I said to Fred McKay, I said, is it okay with you, after I finish my last thing, can you will you excuse me from the ad libs until the end of the show so I can run over there? And he said, Yes. So that was that. So now we go through all those rehearsals and all the dress rehearsals with all the audiences, and now we're doing the show. And I did the first scene, and I did the second scene, and I don't know how to make this most dramatic, but anyhow, I finally finished, and I left. And I ran over and did the audition for Father Knows Best, and went home. And the following Wednesday, I'm over at KHJ doing California Caravan, and Willie Waterman comes in, and we're sitting there marking our scripts, and Willie says, uh, what happened to you the other day? I says, what? He says, on Lux, you know, last month, what happened? I says, what do you mean, what happened? He says, what happened there when you weren't there, when you left? I says, what are you talking about? He says, you don't know? I says, "No, what? He says, you weren't there for your last scene. <laughs> I said, I didn't believe him. I said, you—you you, this can't be true. He says, no. You. Well, I started getting sick. And I said, what happened? He said, Gil Stratton was standing there, and you didn't show up. So he walked up to the mic, and he read your lines. Well, geez, I could hardly wait to get through with this California caravan. And I ran up to J. Walter Thompson's office, which was over then Thrifty Drugstore. And I wanted to see Fred McKay, and uh, he wasn't in. So I talked to his secretary. I says, is it true? She said, yeah. I said, oh, my God. So anyhow, I finally got to talk to Fred McKay, and I said, Gee, you know, I can't believe this. I was sure I was through in the business. I figured that's the end of me, and uh, I'll never work again. I finally talked to Fred, and he says, you know, in New York, nobody knew about it. Nobody knew what happened. They, they didn't know it at all, and it worked out just fine, and Gil Stratton did the thing and everything. And the kicker to the story is that the following week, Fred Mackay used me again on the next show, which was wonderful because I'd have died. <laughs>